How does God want His people to live? It's a pretty important question, right? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we conclude our look at the book of Titus. And today in Titus chapter 3, we're going to see that God wants His people to live lives of godliness. You say, well, what's that mean? Well, we're going to talk about it today in three points. First, we're going to see that godliness flows from a right apprehension of the gospel. Second, godliness involves devoting ourselves to God-honoring works of obedience. And third, godliness involves avoiding certain hazards. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our first point. If you've got a Bible, turn to Titus 3. And we're going to start with this point, which is that godliness flows from a right apprehension of the gospel. In many ways, this is the major theme of the book of Titus. Now, I know that in this series we're in, almost all of our sermons have been out of the book of 1 Timothy. So I want to take just a moment, now that we're going to finish looking at this book of Titus, just to make sure we've got a firm grasp on what this book is about. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, who's one of his longtime ministry associates, and Titus has been given an important job by the Apostle. Uh, Paul has recently completed some missionary work on the Greek island of Crete. Lots of people got saved, churches were formed, things seemed like they were moving well. And then Paul said, okay, it's time for me to go. So he went to western Greece. But what was to happen with these new Cretan churches now that Paul has gone? Well, Paul's got a plan. He's going to leave Titus behind on Crete, and that's what he does. And Titus is left behind so that he can shepherd these new churches to the point where they're in good shape all on their own. But there's a big problem. Titus chapter 1 verse 10 says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. After Paul splits, false teachers arise and they're causing problems. And Paul's particularly concerned about those of the circumcision party. These are folks who are saying, what you need spiritually is not faith in Jesus. What you need is some form of Judaism. Men, you better get circumcised. Everybody, you better keep the law. That's what the false teachers are saying. And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 11, these false teachers must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. These false teachers are getting rich peddling heresy because false teaching almost always pays really well. And for the sake of money, these false teachers are leading people astray and they're destroying people's lives and people's families. So how does false teaching destroy a family? There's lots of ways that can happen. You could split the family. But even more than that, there may be direct attacks on the core of the family. So we saw in 1 Timothy 4 the existence of a heresy that denied the value of marriage, that forbade marriage, that tried to break up families. Maybe that's what's going on here. Or it may be that these heretics are sexually exploiting their female followers. 2 Timothy 3 describes this phenomenon, which is a common, despicable practice of false teachers even down to our own time. Or maybe there was something else going on that we just don't know about. But in some way, this heresy was causing serious problems for people and families on Crete. 
And so Paul says, I've got to write to Titus. I've got to get Titus to fix this problem. And in this book, Paul does four things to help Titus counteract the heresy. First, Paul tells Titus in chapter 1 to appoint elders in every town. If the Cretan churches are to be protected from this false doctrine and other heresies that are sure to come in the future, then they needed Titus to finish setting up their churches by appointing qualified local leaders. The point is not that Titus is going to stay on Crete and become a pope. Titus is a stopgap. He's just there to make sure these churches get off to a good start. And so he is to protect, he is to appoint elders who are going to shepherd and protect these churches. Paul says in chapter 1 that these elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. They need leaders who hold to the true gospel, who teach it without modification, and who are unafraid to confront and rebuke heretics. And that's Paul's first remedy, appoint qualified elders. Second, Paul tells Titus to speak to every part of the church body and encourage every part of the body to grow in godliness. And so we saw in chapter 2 that Paul tells Titus to speak to the older men in the church and urge them to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Titus is to tell the younger men who are believers to be self-controlled. He's to tell older women in the church to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And he is to have the older women train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. This practical instruction would ensure that every part of the church was strengthened in the face of the attack of this false teaching. And particularly, the exhortations to younger women to love and, and serve their husbands and children would help to counteract the false teaching's catastrophic impact on families in these churches. Now, the third remedy Paul gives in this letter is he reminds Titus of the truth of the gospel. And this is what we looked at last week. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Or you might remember we said that means all kinds of people. Teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. One of the best antidotes to the poison of heresy is a plain statement of the truth of the gospel. And Paul gives Titus that, so that Titus can remind the folks on Crete about the true gospel. This will ground them in the truth, and it will also draw a sharp distinction with the heresy. And so, we see the gospel. Jesus is God and man. He has died for our sins. He is risen. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by circumcision, or keeping the Old Testament law, or performing some good work. No, no, no. Titus is to remind them about the true gospel. But Paul gives one more remedy in this letter, and that's really what we're going to be talking about in the rest of our time today. He also reminds Titus about the truth concerning good works. 
that is, Paul wants Titus to understand the relationship between the true gospel and good works. That's how this book begins, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says he's writing, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. See, friends, a right apprehension of the gospel, true knowledge of, of, of Christ, accords with godliness. Many people in our world today have heard the truth that justification is by faith alone and not by works. And they have wrongly concluded from that truth, that means how we live is therefore irrelevant. Friends, that is not biblical. A number of writers have said over the years, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. It will bear the fruit of good works. And that's Paul's point here. The truth accords. It is in alignment with godliness, with a reverent mindset, fixed on serving and obeying God. That proceeds naturally and inseparably from a true reception of the gospel. So while godliness shows an apprehension of the truth, we can also deduce that ungodliness shows that someone has not rightly received the gospel. Say, where do you get that from? Well, Paul says it plainly at the end of chapter 1. Titus 1.16, speaking of the false teachers. He says, they profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. Friends, we cannot be saved by our works, but our works can show that we are not saved. And Paul says that was the case for the false teachers. Unrepentant, perpetual ungodliness shows no apprehension of the truth. But a right apprehension of the gospel produces good works. And friends, that is not an accident. Because Paul says in Titus 2.14, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, listen to this, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the plan and purpose of God. To form a new human population drawn from every background who is going to be set free from slavery to sin, who's going to be zealous for good works. So far from being irrelevant, we can see good works are a big part of God's intention for the lives of His people. Now again, Paul wants to be clear. We're not saved by our works. So he comes back in chapter 3, verse 5. And he says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, according to His own mercy, according to the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We cannot save ourselves through good works. We need to be made new. We need to be set free from the dominion of sin by the Holy Spirit as a gracious act of God. Good works are not the cause of our salvation, but they are the effect. And I want you to know today, that is the uniform teaching of the New Testament. So often people want to take the biblical authors and try and turn them against each other and say, oh, there's a contradiction. Friends, the New Testament is not in contradiction about this or about any other point. It's very clear. James 2.17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith that does not produce supporting evidence in a person's life is not saving faith. Yes, Ephesians 2 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
But the next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God does not save us by works, but he saves us so that after we're saved, we would walk in good works. And this is such an important point that Paul emphasizes this again and again throughout this letter. Because Titus is up against a false teaching that's saying salvation by works. So Paul wants Titus to have a grasp, a firm grasp on these matters. More than that, he urges Titus himself. In chapter 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus is to personally exemplify good works as a church leader. And that's something all church leaders have to strive to do. So what I want you to see is, up to the point where we're going to begin today, we have seen again and again already in the book of Titus, good works are a major theme in this book. And now, in the final verses we're going to look at today in chapter 3, Paul's going to make this point again. Not one more time, not two more times, he's going to make this same point three more times. He really wants to beat this into our head. So let's start today where we, picked up, or where we left off last week, Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The saying Paul's talking about at the start of verse 8 is the passage we looked at last week. That describes the gospel. As Paul says to Titus, this is trustworthy. It's all true. The gospel's real. Jesus saves. And therefore, insist on these things, Paul says. Paul wants Titus to assert his leadership. Paul has told Titus to do this a few times already in this book. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone disregard you. Okay? We don't like the idea of strong leaders today. I get that. But when any man stands in a pulpit and says, thus says the Lord, he better say it with authority because it's God's word. And the Cretans are confused and they're open to deception. And Titus needs to get in their face and say, this is how it is. He's speaking for God. And what does Paul want Titus to say to the Cretans with all authority? Well, the same things Paul's already told him throughout this letter. He's to proclaim the true gospel. He is to urge every part of the church to godly living. And he is to call every believer to live a life of good works. That's what Paul says in verse 8. By the way, it's also what he says at the start of this chapter. Look back at verse 1. He says to Titus, remind the believers in your care to be ready for every good work. He says it again at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 14. And let our, our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So what we see is very simple. Works don't save us. God's grace saves us through repentant faith in Christ. But saved people do good works. We are to be ready for every good work. We are to learn to devote ourselves to good works. Say, okay, 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 okay. I heard this like 15 times already. But what are these good works? Well, that's what we see as we come now to our second point. Godliness involves good works. When I say good works, what goes through your mind is probably something like helping a little old lady across the street or picking up litter or being kind to animals. And those are good things to do. But is that what Paul has in mind when he talks about good works again and again and again? What's the Bible mean when it talks about good works? 
Well, there's no verse in the Bible that says, here is a comprehensive list of works that believers should be doing. And the closest thing that we find to, one, to a list like that is in 1 Timothy 5, where widows are described who receive financial assistance from the church. 1 Timothy 5.10, Paul says, they are to have a reputation for good works. And here are some works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So here we get a sense of what good works might look like. If you've got a family, you should take care of them. Uh, serve fellow believers. Assist the needy. Those are some good works. But again, this list is not exhaustive. Because at the end of it, Paul says, she has devoted herself to every good work. Telling us other good works exist beyond just these categories. So the Bible declines to give us an exhaustive list of good works. And that's wise. Because human nature being what it is, if we had a list like that, what we would do is only scrupulously perform the, the works on this list and say, oh, I've done it. I've done it, God. But see, God isn't interested in turning us into a bunch of robots whose spiritual life is reduced to checking off a checklist. God wants us actively, mentally engaged with our lives and with the people around us, always considering how we can best honor and glorify Him in every situation. After all, Romans 12 says this is what God really wants in our lives, believing friends. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, God wants all of us, body, soul, and mind, all the time, in every thought, word, and deed. That's what the Bible says God deserves from us. And as we seek to live in a way that honors Him, by obeying His word in our lives, by loving and serving other people, then we will indeed be devoted to good works. Now, when I talk about good works in, in my sermons sometimes, I'll often describe them as works of obedience. And there's a reason for that. Because sometimes people invent their own notions of good works that are not grounded in the Bible. But friends, someone else's opinion about how we ought to live is not the standard for our lives. The standard is God's own word. So good works are God-honoring acts of obedience to His word. Okay, if I come up with some standard and I want to impose it on you, you shouldn't just buckle because I'm saying it very persuasively, right? You need a chapter and verse. But if there's a chapter and verse, then by all means, we better obey it, right? All right, so good works are God-honoring acts of obedience to His word. And our lives are to be characterized by a general posture of devotion to God and obedience to His word. Now, of course, we're going to fail. And we're going to fail a lot. Sometimes we're going to fail terribly. But a general posture of obedience is what we're called to. Now, the New Testament tells us that there are a lot of different things we need to obey. But here in chapter 3, Paul's going to emphasize four types of good works that we need to attend to. And the first one, Paul says, is this. Christians must obey the state. Last year, one prominent evangelical Christian commentator said, quote, If the government is telling you that you have to do something, you need to understand that's not the American way, folks. And if only to be a rebel, you need to say, I'm not going to do this. But the Apostle Paul, speaking on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, says in Titus 3.1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Now, we might not like that instruction. We might prefer what the talking head a moment earlier told us. 
We might say, submitting to the government is not the American way. We may secretly relish the thought of being a rebel. I get that. I've lived that. Rebellion is a deeply ingrained part of this nation's culture. Resisting and standing in opposition to the government is something that Americans have glamorized for centuries. But while rebellion is the American way, ordinarily that is not the Christian way. Jesus is not the architect of rebellion. Satan is. Jesus' people are to have a general posture towards the government of submissiveness and obedience. Now, there is an exception to that, which I will discuss in a moment. But these days, all anybody wants to do is talk about the exception. When do I get to rebel? But nobody wants to talk about the general principle, which is to submit. But make no mistake, submission should be our normal response to the government and its agents. Why? Well, Paul says in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Government comes from God. In Genesis 9, God instituted government when He said, If you commit murder, you're going to get the death penalty. And not only did God invent the notion of government, God is sovereign, friends, over the rise and fall of every human government, every human nation, and every human leader. Daniel 2 says he removes kings and he sets up kings. And every government that comes to power, whether it's for good or for bad, has come by the the hand of God. And friends, understand that with that truth comes a warning. Romans 13, 2 says, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So ordinarily, rebelling against the state is rebelling against God. Now, I've heard Christians say that's true only when the government is good, whatever that means. I think by that they meant whenever I like the government. But realize that when Paul wrote Romans 13 and when he wrote Titus 1, he was living in the Roman Empire. And the emperor was a man named Nero, who is one of the most wicked and murderous rulers in world history, who tortured many Christians who lit them on fire to light his garden parties. That's not exactly a good government. You might not like our leaders today. They weren't Nero. And yet Paul says, submit to Nero, submit to the state. And if Paul could submit to Nero, then surely we can submit to our leaders. Now, yes, there is one limited exception when we should not submit to the state. And that is when the state commands us to do something that disobeys God. And when that happens, we must say with the apostles in Acts 5 that we must obey God rather than men. But again, friends, I have heard this misused. People think every thought in their, in their head is, is coming to them from God, and therefore, well, I have an excuse to disobey whenever my head tells me to. No, friends, unless we have a chapter and verse reference that the state is telling us to disobey, then our general posture must be obedience. And that is a good work, Paul says. This is being good citizens. That reflects well on Christ before all people, including those who are in power over us. Now, the second type of good work that Paul commands believers to perform here is to refrain from combative speech. Titus 3.2, Paul says, Speak evil of no one, 
avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Paul says that believers need to learn how to govern our tongues. We're not to speak evil about other people. Now, that doesn't mean that we can speak... Okay, that, that, oh boy, how did I phrase this? This is really, really tricky. Okay, he's not trying to prohibit us from speaking the truth about evil things other people do. Uh, Paul has revealed the truth about evil things other people did when he speaks about the false teachers in chapter 1. Now, this verb usually means to slander. Okay, Believers are not to spread lies about other people. Neither are we to be quarrelsome, and the idea here is speaking harshly or severely. No, we are to speak gently. Very often these days, Christian men, especially Christian leaders, think that the biblical command to admonish one another gives us a license to bully. And Christian women can take these same commands and use them to play mean girls. Friends, that is all sin. Yes, we should admonish one another. Yes, sometimes we have to say hard things to each other, but we don't have to be mean about it. Right? We're to do it gently. In fact, the final command Paul gives here is usually translated to be meek or to be courteous towards one another. The idea is show restraint in your speech. Friends, you don't have to say everything that pops into your head. We've all got to be humble and gentle with our speech. And that's not just only a command for how we deal with other believers. That's how we should deal with everybody, Paul says. Now, we probably don't consider our speech to be a big deal. You know, our society is very comfortable using harsh language. And in recent years, I have seen Christians increasingly abandon courtesy to use very unbecoming language publicly as we feel like we are being listened to less and less. But friends, we need to know that how we speak, that's a big deal to God. James 1 says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. God takes our speech seriously and so should we. Matthew 12, Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Godliness requires that we govern our tongues. That's also a good work that speaks well of Christ before other people. Now, the third type of good work Paul mentions here is quite general. In verse 8, he says, Those who have believed in God are to be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. If you want to know if you've got an opportunity to do a good work, here's a quick test. If you see a way to be useful to someone or to tangibly benefit them somehow, that constitutes an opportunity to perform a good deed. These are the sorts of deeds that Jesus says, others will see and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're to help those who are in need. And that's especially true, verse 14 says, when there are cases of urgent need. You know, we're always going to encounter lots of different needs, and we cannot reasonably invest ourselves in every need that everyone around us has. We should do what we can as we have opportunity. But we must especially get involved when an urgent need arises, when there is something demanding and pressing, and we're made aware of it, that's the time to get involved. Whether that's sheltering a believer who has lost power in a winter storm, or buying medical supplies to send to a sick lady in Venezuela, or bringing food to a family that's going through a hard time. Friends, you all have excelled at this in the past. And I say to you, excel still further. Because Paul says here in verse 14, we don't want to be unfruitful. 
And what that tells us is helping meet urgent needs bears real fruit that endures for the kingdom, but selfishly ignoring urgent needs will produce fruitlessness. So let's help everybody as opportunities arise to help them, especially when the needs are urgent. Now this brings us to the fourth and final good work Paul describes here, which are good works that we do to help laborers in the gospel. Look at verse 12. Paul says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Verse 15, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. All right, so Paul has left Titus on Crete. He's gone to Nicopolis in western Greece. But Titus's time on Crete is soon coming to an end. Paul's going to send one of his other friends, Artemis or Tychicus. And whichever of these guys that Paul picks is going to take this letter, Titus, to Titus. And he will take over where Titus is to leave off. But before Titus leaves Crete, some other gospel workers are going to be headed his way. Zenos the lawyer. I've heard a lot of people say, you can't be a Christian and a lawyer. Well, this verse refutes you. Zenos was a lawyer. He's an associate of Paul. And Apollos, these two guys are going to be stopping by Crete. They're going on a missionary journey too. And Paul wants Titus to help them as he encounters them. Paul says, see that they lack nothing. This is an important instruction because it reminds us of the plight of the earliest ministers of the gospel and also of modern missionaries who travel around the known world with no reliable income, with little to no personal property, living by faith, trusting their lives to God and God's people. We find a similar scenario in 3 John 7, where we read that such people have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Paul's ministry associates in the first century, like our missionaries today, they don't get support from unbelievers. Why would they? No, they need the help of believers like us. And John says in 3 John, just like Paul says here, it's good to take care of missionaries and gospel workers. We ought to support them. In fact, John says in his book, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. God expects a certain standard of us in how we take care of his missionaries. And when we meet that standard... Amazingly, 3 John 8 tells us that we become fellow workers with the truth. We become partners with the gospel itself, if that were possible, John says, when we support missionaries. That's a privileged position. Now, what does this support entail? Well, first, it's good to pray for them. And we see that in the final words of this book. Paul and the church that's with him are praying for Titus, that God's grace would be with him. Second, it's good to encourage gospel workers, and that happens in verse 15 as well, as Paul and the church with him greet Titus. But beyond prayer and encouragement, we should also help meet their material needs, and that's what Paul tells Titus to do for Zenos and Apollos. That's what we need to do for our missionary, Alan, who is laboring in Africa. Now, our church regularly gives Alan some money, but we do have a fund now in our online giving portal where we can designate additional missions giving, and I would encourage you to help with this and help Alan and his family's needs because that's appropriate and it honors God and it privileges us to be co-workers along with Alan in the gospel. All right, so we've seen true conversion generates godliness in our lives 
And we've seen that godliness involves us performing good works. And we've seen four types of good deeds that God wants us to do. We need to be submissive to the state. We need to govern our speech. We need to be ready to help whatever needs pop up. And we need to help take care of God's laborers. We come now to our last point, which is that godliness also requires avoiding certain hazards. There are many things the Bible tells us to avoid. Flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians says. Flee idolatry. The passage we'll look at next week, Paul says, flee from the love of money. Clearly, there are hazardous temptations that call out to us, inviting us to destroy our faith and bring catastrophe into our lives. And we need to take great pains to avoid these hazards. But in our remaining verses, Paul tells Titus, there are two more hazards that believers need to be careful to avoid. And these hazards may not be quite as obvious, and yet, as we will see, they are very dangerous. The first hazard Paul wants Titus to flee from are distracting disputes. Look at verse 9. He says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The false teaching on Crete had probably been derived from some esoteric ideas within the Judaism of that time. In the centuries surrounding the coming of Christ, many Jewish books were written that were highly speculative. They tried to explain difficult passages in the Old Testament by inventing whole mythologies and complex interpretive systems that didn't really find any basis in the Bible. It just came out of the imagination of the authors. And lots of people read these speculative books and took them seriously. And they developed aberrant, weirdo, mystical spiritualities from these books. And these guys tried to win converts. And their strategy would be to try to suck people into conversations or debates that were all about doctrinal minutia. Like, who's the ninth name in this genealogy? Let me tell you its secret meaning. Or this stuff involved a lot of double talk and nonsensical word games. And these things would deceive the unwary who were impressed by all of this, which looked so impressive and sounded so serious, and yet it really was spiritually bankrupt. You see the same sort of thing in our world today, among people who get sucked into various conspiracy theories, people who believe in flat earth, or 9-11 theories, or QAnon. They really want to convince you that they have stumbled into the profound truth that makes sense of reality. But if you ever spend any time talking to people that are into this stuff, the conversations usually become bizarre and circular. They fixate on words or factoids that the deceived people seem to think are so important, but which really clearly aren't. And the more you try to reason with them, the more you're just going to get frustrated. Because they have a whole system that's internally coherent and makes sense of all of these seemingly random data points in their mind, but it isn't going to make any sense to you or anybody else. Well, that's basically what's going on in Crete. The heretics have a system like that, and they're using these same tactics to deceive undiscerning Christians. And they're exhausting church leaders who are trying to argue with these systems of thought that basically defy logical analysis. And false teaching often works like this. I solemnly warn you, brothers and sisters, against any teacher or movement who claims to have innovative doctrine or who tells you that the key to the spiritual life is buying into their particular understanding of some obscure passage from the Bible. Anybody who tries to sell you on a scheme like that is following the pattern of the heretics in Crete. Beware this stuff. It is terribly destructive. It can destroy families. It can destroy churches. It can destroy you. 
that can split congregations, or worse, it can deceive congregations. So Paul's disturbed by what's happening on Crete. And Paul says to Titus, don't get caught up in this. Don't give these heretics any of your time or attention. Don't listen to their spiel. Don't waste your time debating them. Paul says these controversies are foolish. The Greek word here is actually where we get our English word moron. And arguing with false teachers about their made-up theories doesn't do any good. It's just going to produce ungodliness. It's going to waste people's time. Don't engage with it, Paul says. This is the New Testament version of Proverbs 26.4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Now, there are a few ways we could take this instruction incorrectly. Some people read this and say, well, we should never argue about theology. That's not what Paul's saying. In fact, the Bible tells us sometimes we do need to dispute about theology. Jude 3 says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. When a theological controversy touches an essential doctrine, we must rise up and speak for the gospel. We cannot yield for a moment to anyone who would deny the Trinity or the, death and, or the deity and humanity of Christ or the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus. We cannot yield to, for a moment to anyone who would deny that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. We must contend for these things. But we should be slower to argue about more debatable questions. And we should be entirely unwilling to get sucked into disputes with people who are just spinning their wheels endlessly about nonsense and minutia. That's not to say we shouldn't try to help someone who's deceived to find their way back to the truth. But it is to say there's a big difference between how we interact with a deceived person and a deceiver. If someone's got genuine questions and they're confused, we've got to try to help them. Jude ends his book with a powerful appeal to help people who are deceived by false doctrine. He says, have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Yes, we want to help the deceived, but we must be wary about deceivers, people who are committed to false ideas and who promote them. 2 John 10 says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his evil works. Now that word greet in the Greek is the way to say hello. So John says, don't even say howdy to a false teacher or you become a participant with him in his wickedness. Now here Paul adds to that. If a false teacher wants to take up your time going on and on about his nonsense, don't waste a second on him. So be careful, friends. Don't be drawn into this kind of error that there's secret knowledge out there. And if we tap into it, everything's going to make sense and our spiritual lives will soar. Friends, God isn't hiding the ball. Romans 16 says, The mystery that was kept secret for long ages has now been disclosed. The key to reality is understanding Jesus. And anyone that invites you into a conversation says otherwise, avoid that conversation. Let me say another word here. Sometimes there are unprofitable and worthless controversies that arise that have nothing to do with theology. Sometimes Christians get at cross purposes with each other for no good reason. There are churches that have split over carpet color. Or sometimes people just rub each other the wrong way because their personalities don't mesh. These days, people are bringing political and cultural controversy into the church and having arguments about that stuff. Friends, I'm sick of this stuff. We have enough problems combating the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't need to be fighting ourselves about any of this kind of nonsense. 
If you are tempted to provoke a needless controversy with anybody about any of this kind of stuff, I implore you, please don't do it. If you are at odds with a fellow believer here for no good reason, I give you the directive Paul gave to two feuding women at Philippi when he says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Friend, find peace and let it go. Because we don't have the time to get mired in foolish controversies, doctrinal or otherwise. But lastly, Paul doesn't just want Titus to avoid foolish controversies. He also wants Titus to avoid persistently divisive people. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. He says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, who is this divisive person? Well, the Greek word here is hereticos, which is where we get the English word heretic. And as a result, some people take this verse and say, well, this is only about somebody that's promoting false doctrine. But we cannot interpret this Greek word by looking to the English word that was derived from it. We've got to look at the Greek word on its own terms. And in Greek, hereticos just means somebody that stirs up division. Now, certainly, this could be theological division. In fact, the people Paul has in mind here are probably the heretics. But what Paul says here is not really restricted only to false teachers. There are many ways that people can stir up division in the church. We see this in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 1, there are people who divided the Corinthian church by forming fan clubs about their favorite leaders in the church. And then these factions fought for power. So there we have hostile factions. In Numbers 16, we see a group of people band together under a guy named Korah, and they grumble against the leadership of Moses. So what we have there is an attempted coup. In Galatians 2, Peter makes some bad decisions and winds up reinforcing an ethnic division in the Galatian churches, causing Paul to rebuke him. So there we've got a division based on worldly criteria. And divisions can form for other reasons too. Interpersonal disputes that we don't handle biblically, minor doctrinal disagreements, etc., etc. How should we think about divisions? The first thing I want to say is the body of Christ must not divide unless there are real issues that strike at the heart of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 11 says, There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Where there are issues concerning essential doctrine or unrepentant sin, it can be appropriate to divide from someone, even from a group of people. Because it's necessary for us to maintain our witness. And when that happens, the people who are guilty of the division are the people who are guilty of the underlying sin, not the people who call attention to it. But where divisions are about less important matters, we need to remember Paul's words in Ephesians 4. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, eager to maintain peace. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but I got a hard time dealing with person X because I don't like the way he says hello to me. I don't like the way he takes his coffee. I don't like where his kids go to school. I don't like how he votes. I don't like his views about the end times, and I don't like the worship music that he likes. I get it. Anytime you get a lot of people living together in a community, they're going to step on each other's toes about something. But that's why Paul says we've got to deal with each other in humility, not imagining that, oh, my way is the only way. We've got to be gentle towards each other, not harsh. We've got to be patient with each other, not explosive. We've got to bear with each other in love. But maybe we think, well, my, 
my ideas about this subject are so important. This is an exception. It's okay to divide. Well, here's the test to know whether that's true or not. Paul says, here's the basis of our unity. Ephesians 4.4, 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The unity we have with each other is a unity grounded in the faith. So if the, doc, if the division cuts to the issue, the heart of the gospel, if it gets to the essentials of the faith, then yes, there may be a reason to divide. But if the issue does not implicate the essentials of the faith, then we need to bear with each other patiently. I further want you to notice, Ephesians 4 says the unity of the church is the unity of the Spirit. It's a unity that comes from the Spirit, shared by those who have the Spirit. And as we submit to the Spirit's leadership by obeying God's Word and loving each other and bearing with each other, peace and unity will reign in our midst. But listen to what Jude says in Jude 19. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Divisions happen when the leadership of the Spirit is rejected. And the words that Jude uses to describe the person who foments division are really strong. He says they're devoid of the Spirit. They're worldly. Friends, you don't want that to be you. That says something really dangerous about your spiritual condition. Paul says the same thing in our passage, right? The person who causes needless division in the church is warped. That is, he's perverse. He's mired in sin. And he's courting condemnation because of his own evil conduct. These are serious warnings, friends. And yet, isn't it so easy for foolish divisions to erupt in the church? For people to get so self-assertive, so unyielding, so unwilling to lovingly bear with others that they would rather fracture the body of Christ than continue to coexist peacefully. And what we need to know is that when this happens, when people stir up division, God's Word tells us how to deal with that in Titus 3, 10, and 11. Here we find one of the three central passages that describes the discipline of the church. Matthew 18 tells us, ordinarily, there is a four-step process to address unrepentant sin. Right, you go one-on-one. -on -one. If he repents, that's it. If not, you take witnesses. If he repents, that's it. If not, you tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, if he, he, he repents, that's it. If he, if he doesn't listen to the church, you put him out, right? That's the normal process. 1 Corinthians 5 gives us another process. It says sometimes people in the church will get caught in such outrageous sin, you've got to put them out right away. That's a one-step process. But now here's a third procedure. Where someone is guilty of stirring up division, the process is different. It's a three-step process. Paul says first, give them a warning. Now Paul addresses this to, to Titus, so we should understand that it is Titus who gives the warning. Or in the context of local churches today, it is the elders who give the warning. And if the divisive person heeds the warning, if they stop stirring up division, that's the end of the process. But if they stir up more division later, they get a second warning. If they heed that warning, that's the end of it. But if they cause more division for a third time, Paul says, have nothing more to do with them. That is, put them out of the church. So there's a three-step process here for dealing with division. And friends, it is vital for us to obey this instruction. We cannot long abide divisive people in the church. It will harm our brothers and sisters. It will waste the church's energy and time. It will imperil our witness and our ministry. It will threaten the survival of the body. And Paul even says they are endangering themselves being self-condemned. So for the good of the sinner and the good of the church, we must listen to Paul. We must warn the divisive 
And that means, friends, if you know that there is someone who is stirring up trouble in the church to give effect to this instruction, you should admonish them and you should tell the elders. And if you know that you are acting divisively, then I urge you to receive this admonition from the scriptures and repent. And friends, tragically, if someone is unrepentantly divisive, then we must obey this command and avoid them, Paul says. This is what godliness requires, that we avoid foolish disputes and that we avoid persistently divisive people. So to conclude, if you're not a believer today, I want to say to you, you are incapable of performing any good works in the sight of God. What you need to do is listen to this saying of Jesus. John 6 says, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. You need to cast yourself on the mercy of Christ and be saved. But those of us who are believers, we need to examine ourselves. Are we walking in godliness? Are we interested in performing good works? Or do we want to live without thinking about what God has called us to do? Believing, friends, I especially want you to examine yourselves by what we've talked about today. What is your posture towards the state? How do you govern your speech? Do you try to help people when you see that they're in need? Do you help gospel workers? Do you embroil yourself in worthless controversies? Or do you act in a manner that's contrary to the unity of the church? Friends, where we have failed, let us confess our sins to God and receive His cleansing. May we repent and strive to live the godly lives that we're called to. And may we entrust ourselves to the grace of God that we so desperately need to live this life. For as Paul said to Titus, Grace be with you all.